Welcome to APTA's Pulse Podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Physical therapist Sarah Wanger knows that while treating people with chronic pain can be challenging, PTs and PTAs are well-equipped to help them. In this episode, Sarah discusses the complexity of chronic pain management, including the mental and emotional aspects. But she also reassures younger clinicians that they are well-prepared to make a meaningful impact on the lives of people with chronic pain. Here's our conversation with Sarah. Sarah, let's have you start by telling us about your background and how your focus became pain science. So I work at Drexel University and I teach physical therapy in the physical therapy program there. I teach pathophysiology and chronic pain content is included in that. And I teach some problem-based learning courses. Um, I also am in the clinic two days a week. I work in a pro bono clinic where I treat a lot of patients with chronic pain and medically complex issues of various sorts. Um, So I started my career working in a hospital where we had an outpatient um, clinic. And we so we would rotate through outpatient and inpatient settings. And I always worked with an underserved population um, where there was a lot of chronic pain. But when I graduated school, you know, we didn't know that much about chronic pain. There wasn't all of this science about the neuroplastic changes that happen and, and epigenetics and all of those things I didn't know about when I first graduated. So I was working with people that were really challenging and had what I now look back in retrospect was chronic pain and probably neuroplastic changes and some of the emotional overlay, but at the time didn't really have the science and the information to do it, but recognized that it, what I was doing wasn't really working or fitting. And so I really just fumbled my way through it in the beginning and kind of learned some things that seemed to work and things that didn't seem to work, which in retrospect, I would say are, you know, managing, catastrophizing and fear avoiding work and not managing those things didn't work. And then started, some of the information started coming out and I started learning about it and I super excited because it really clicked for me and really seemed to describe what I was seeing in the clinic. And that's, that's really how I got interested in chronic pain. Okay. So this is probably a simple question to a really complex answer, but in your opinion, why is chronic pain so challenging to manage and treat? I think that the short answer would be because it depends on so many different things you know, the answer in school is always, it depends. And I always tell my students, don't ask me what the answer is, ask me what the answer depends on. But for chronic pain, I think the things that the answer depends on are just broad, and there's a lot of them. So there's so many things to think about and so many things that influence your outcome, that it's really challenging to feel like you have a handle on it. And I think that's really what makes pain hard. And then secondary to that, well, really one of the things that depends on is somebody's emotional state. And there does, there's often a lot of emotionality with chronic pain. So people who are feeling fearful or who are feeling scared or upset or discouraged about the health care they're getting, discouraged about their prospects, especially people who've really been through the health care system a lot and haven't had the greatest experiences those people are coming in with just high levels of emotionality. And I think that we 
as healthcare providers don't always feel prepared or comfortable in managing that. So let's dive in and talk about the ways you treat chronic pain and how do you individualize treatment? You kind of just said that every case is different in various ways, but can you speak to that some? Yeah, I think it's really important to individualize care. And I think that we get caught a little bit in healthcare. We we think about, you know, we think about individualizing care as something that happens inside our own heads. So we think, all right, you know, the person has X, Y, and Z, and the research about X, Y, and Z shows this. So I'm individualizing care by taking into consideration all of the evidence that applies to all the things that I that this person has or that I've measured. And that certainly is an example and part of individualizing care, but I think the bigger piece and where you really get into the richness of individualized care is when you include the patient in decision-making. So I think having the patient's input and giving them options and saying, you know, sort of externalizing your thought process kind of as a CI would do for a student. So explaining what you're seeing, what you're observing, what that means to you, why you're deciding why a particular treatment might be helpful, what treatments you're sort of, you're debating. Like you've got all these things in your mind that you're thinking which one of these things would work. Really explaining all that to your patient so that your patient can then say, ooh, that one really clicks for me. This one, you know, I've tried something like that before and it doesn't click. Or they can give some input. And once you get their input, that's when you can really individualize care. And as you start those conversations, if you're externalizing your thought process, first of all, that's great education for your patient. But it also gives your your patient an opportunity to identify important information about them, about their preferences, about their past, about things that they've tried or haven't tried before. And once they see your thought process, they are better able to recognize what information is important for you to know so that you can think through things better. And I think that pairing and teaming and, you know, patient-centered approach is really how you individualize care in a meaningful way. So APTA launched its Choose PT campaign to, in part, bring awareness to the physical therapist's role in treating pain. Can you talk about why this type of patient education is important and how you hope it makes an impact on the healthcare system and for patients as a whole? So I think the Choose PT campaign is, is twofold. There's the part that's trying to educate the public, and then there's us educating ourselves as physical therapists or really brought more broadly as healthcare providers and educating our other colleagues in healthcare. So in terms of the public, I think it's really important to provide options. I mean, I really feel like it mirrors that individual interaction. So when I when I treat a patient, I will say things like, you know, there's lots of different things that have been shown in the research to be helpful for people who have pain. If there is a study done that says, you know, this hypothetical, I usually give a hypothetical scenario to patients that say, you know, if they do a study and the study shows that 80% of the people got better with a particular intervention, that's an intervention that would be really good for me to recommend because it helps lots of people. But you aren't lots of people. You're you, and we don't know if you are the 80% that it helped or the 20% that it didn't help. 
So my role is to give you as much information as I can and to make you aware of all the things that help people in general who have chronic pain. And your job is to take all that and really try it, work with it a little bit. I I use the word marinate on it a lot to decide which of those things really work for you and which combinations of things work for you or what works for you when and make your own little toolkit that's individual to you. So I think the Choose PT campaign is doing that on a broader scale. I think our job is to educate the public about all the different options there are for treating pain. You know, I think most people still think, oh, I get, I'll get surgery or I'll get an injection or I'll take a medication. Those things are very commonly known. But the idea that you could get physical therapy or learn about pain neuroscience, that certainly isn't an idea that's out there. Or even exercise. People know exercise is good for you, but they don't necessarily connect exercise with something that's going to make their pain go away. And particularly for people who are attached to a very biomechanical, very biomechanical ideas or very medicine-based ideas, it's really important to educate the public that there's this wide range of options. So when they enter into the healthcare system, they they know that they have a variety of different options. I think direct access is really helpful in that regard because for people who feel that an exercise or a more conservative approach is going to work better for them, they have access to get to physical therapists. Um, but I think our the job of the QCT campaign publicly is to present all of that information so the public has a better awareness of what their options are because I strongly feel that people are pretty good at choosing the options that fit best for them. And it isn't to say that taking medications or getting surgery is never the option. It frequently is the option. But if it's the only option you know, it's really hard to choose something else. And I think those things are so much more well-known than other more conservative non-pharmacological treatments are, and and we really have some work to do to get that information out there to the public. And now for a quick break. Are you ready to tell the world about the benefits of physical therapy? We're here to help. Visit APTA's official consumer information website, choosept.com. There you can find branded graphics and information, postcards, and merchandise to share in your communities or on social media. APTA member physical therapists can also activate their profile and find a PT to make it easy for the public to contact you. So get involved and help us maximize public awareness of the value of physical therapy by promoting choosept.com. Now let's return to the show. So let's talk about a situation where you have a patient who's in a lot of pain and they're coming to you for help, but also expressing they're in pain and it's not going away quick enough. Think about the patient who wants there to be an instant gratification. How would you advise a new or young therapist to navigate this kind of case? Yeah, so I think think working with patients who really want, you know, a quick fix right now and they're in a lot of pain and they're really upset is, is very challenging. I think the number one thing that you can do for someone the number one, like, step in the interaction with somebody is to really make sure they feel heard, let them tell their story. Um, I find that a lot of patients just feel so strongly that nobody understands how much pain they're in. 
So they feel that when we make non-pharmacological, non-surgical recommendations, that we're making those recommendations because we think we don't understand how much pain they were in. And if we understood how much pain they were in, we would be making different recommendations. So I think step one is, is really interacting with people and building that rapport and establishing a therapeutic alliance and doing some of the motivational interviewing techniques like mirror, you know, speak back what somebody's saying, really show your patient that you're hearing them and that you understand how much pain they're in and how limited they are. And then I go back again to to really externalizing your thought process. And sometimes you really have to say, you know, there's nothing I can do to make your pain go away right now. Um, and this pain took a long time to develop. If it did, I mean, typically when we're seeing people with chronic pain, they've had it for a while, and it, it is going to take some time for it to go away. I think getting people sold on the idea of things like pacing and good body mechanics and exercise in lieu of medication and injections and things of that nature that work a little bit faster is a really tough sell. And sometimes you do, you know, sometimes you can call up the primary care provider or whoever, whatever physician they're seeing and maybe have a discussion about starting off with something that, you know, a pain medication or a muscle relaxer or an injection or some such thing that's going to deal with their immediate pain short term and then get that kind of gives you some time to get the patient engaged in a more long-term plan. Um, so I think that's appropriate sometimes, but not all the time. And I think, you know, I think sometimes it's just being really frank with patients about how slow the treatment's going to be and that you don't necessarily have a quick fix, but that you really believe that you can help them and that you believe that these other treatments can help them and will help them over time, even if it's slow. If someone's in a huge amount of pain and they can't engage in exercise and they can't engage in their regular ADLs and they can't go to work, I think that's when it's appropriate to do to, to give them something faster acting for pain so that they can participate in the things that will make them better in the long term. At APTA's annual NEXT conference in June, the keynote speaker at the conference was Justin Minyard, a military veteran with a harrowing resume and an inspiring story. Justin told us about his experience with excruciating pain, his opioid addiction, and how his work with a physical therapist helped him manage his pain and end his opioid addiction. One of the points Justin made was that his PT reframed his mentality about pain. That is, pain may always be there, but it doesn't have to be all-consuming in what he referred to as the headline, and instead can be a footnote. Can you talk a little bit about the mental and emotional aspects of pain? Yeah, I think I I say a lot to patients that um, maybe the goal, you know, I, I don't think that it's realistic that you're going to have zero pain. I mean, this obviously depends on what the patient has. I mean, if they sprained their ankle and they're relatively healthy. Otherwise, sure, that's a reasonable expectation. But if they've had multiple surgeries or they have lots of degenerative changes or they have, you know, radiculopathy or something that's one of those kinds of diagnoses that tends to linger, I think a more useful conversation is 
saying, you know, this pain isn't necessarily going to go away or go to zero. It's not going to be like, oh, I don't even remember where it was when I had it. You know, that that the pain realistically is still going to be there and, and normalizing that thing, you know, unless you're super young and in your 20s and still growing or, you know, you're a kid, pretty much once you stop growing and, you know, get into your 30s and get into adulthood, everybody has some pain. And the the goal isn't necessarily zero pain, but the goal is getting your pain to not totally steal your life from you, making it so that you can do what you have to do. Maybe the pain is there, but it is not stopping you from being who you want to be and doing what you need to do. You may have to make some modifications or change the way you pace your activities or do your activities in terms of like using better body mechanics or having better posture or better ergonomics or something like that, but that you can do what you need to do and the pain isn't stopping you from that. And I find that most patients, certainly not all, but most patients are really amenable to that and really understand that. There, there are some patients who really just have a very hard time, you know, they they are very stuck on the idea of making the pain go completely away. And, and you know, those are tend to be patients that have much higher emotionality around the pain, and it could be around how the pain began, could have to do with all kinds of things. You know, people come with high emotionality for a wide range of reasons that can trace back to childhood or can be associated with, you know, maybe the pain started in a pretty traumatic event that was very frightening. A lot of those things can ramp up the emotionality. And when you have that high emotionality, I think you, you have to you have to address that first. And sometimes that's something we can address in physical therapy fairly well by establishing a really good rapport and make, making sure our patients feel heard and feel cared for and you know, if our patients believe that we're doing the best we can and giving them good advice and are really committed to helping them, I think that goes a long way. But for people with deeper, you know, deeper emotional or psychological problems and certainly people with, you know, deep emotional wounds, I think sometimes, you know, that's when we really need the help of our mental health colleagues. Um, and there's you know, whether it be a social worker or a psychologist or a creative arts therapist, there's there are a lot of people working in different mental health professions. And I think one of the things that's been such a wonderful learning experience for me is working very closely with my mental health colleagues. And much of what I've learned about how to manage and engage people who are challenging in that way, in that emo- that high emotionality way. I've really learned from my mental health colleagues, and I think working collaboratively with them is the best, best way to learn that. And I certainly encourage anybody, but, but particularly new grads, um, to really find your mental health colleagues in the community and find people that you can ask questions to and, you know, describe a case scenario to and get their advice on. But as much as you can, finding people that you share patients with that you can really discuss the case with who can give you advice. Um, Had a lot of advice from 
mental health providers that work with me and they've given me, like if I go to them and I say something like I'm really having a hard time, like I feel like this person's coming to therapy and they're just not, like they always seem like they're uncomfortable and I talk to them and I just never feel like they are, you know, buying what I'm selling. They don't really believe what I'm saying. I just don't feel I'm having such a hard time engaging them and I just always feel like they're off or uncomfortable during therapy. And I, if I bring that up to, to a mental health colleague who's also working with that patient, sometimes they'll say things like, you know, they due to things that happened in their past, they're very triggered in loud and busy environments, which, of course, is exactly what a gym is. Or they'll say, or they'll say something like, you know, they, they do better if you can, like, sit and be really calm first and tell them what's going to happen. And so they have, like, a very clear plan of what's going to happen that day. Then, they're, then they can get more engaged in doing it versus if you – giving them one thing at a time and they kind of never know what's coming, that they're very uneasy in those situations. So they can give you a lot of advice about how to engage a particular patient, which is above and, you know, you, there's a lot of general knowledge about how to be engaging and engage, be engaging in general, but how to engage one particular problem, one particular patient with one particular set of problems, both physically and emotionally is, again, individualized, and, and your mental health colleagues are just wonderful at helping with that. And the more you can partner with them, the more you'll learn. And now for a quick break. Go Southwest and experience the excitement and fun of APTA's National Student Conclave, the only physical therapy conference for students and by students. Join us in Albuquerque, New Mexico, October 31st through November 2nd. Register by September 25th for the best rates. Visit apta.org slash NSC for more details. And now let's return to the show. So Sarah, I really want to get your insight on recommended resources to use with patients to help educate them on chronic pain. Before, you mentioned articulating your treatment plan and process to your patients. And beyond having that open communication, what resources do you recommend to clinicians? So I do like Laura Mosley's Tame the Beast video. It's, um, I think, tamethebeast.com. Um, but it is a five- or six-minute video. It's very short, and it does just a phenomenal job of explaining how pain works scientifically without being scientific at all. And it's it's kind of like a cartoon and it goes through the whole thing. It does a very nice job, and it's a great conversation starter with with uh, patients. I think sometimes patients do well when you sit down and explain it to them, but sometimes it's just a lot. It's, you know, neuroscience is complicated, and even if you're not getting into the science, explaining to someone like, hey, everything you think you know about pain and how pain works is probably a little bit off because we've learned all this stuff in the last 20 years. And I, I say that to patients, too. Like, you know, what I learned when I came out of school is completely different than what I know now because it's changed. So I'll I'll explain that to patients. But I think that the Tame the Beast video is a really nice starting point. There are so many websites out there for patients, and I think, well, it's hard It's hard to sort of pick through what the best resources are for patients because I think it, it, it's individual. You know, some patients prefer delivery in one way versus another. Like, 
the way that it's presented on one website might just click for somebody better than another. So I think it's good to have several resources available that you recommend. We have our um, Power Over Pain website that we use at Drexel. That's poweroverpain.sarah.pt. And that has we link to the Tame the Beast video and to a video used out in Oregon at the Oregon Health Center that really, does a really nice job with patient and family education, and we have our handouts posted there that anyone can use for free. Um, there, are, there, there are chat rooms. There are Facebook groups. There's other things on the Internet. I'm not good at the Internet, but there's um, lots of resources and support-ish groups out there. I have found for my patients who are engaging in, in like kind of those you know, group chat kind of places on the internet that some of them are really wonderful and they share good information and it's really positive and some of them are less positive and less helpful. So I think it's it's helpful to suggest ones, particularly ones that are in your area and local, um, to know about those. But every time I turn around, there's more information for patients on the website. Obviously, APTA has some really good resources on their website. The American Psychological Association also has some good resources on their website. And I think many professional associations at this point are starting to add a whole lot of content on chronic pain. So I just usually, I try to start my patients off with a couple of examples, but I, I also usually tell them to feel free to tinker around a little bit, and I give them some parameters about how to tell if it's quality information, you know, like sticking with the .edus and things like that and being a little bit more wary about places that are trying to sell something and just kind of giving them some parameters. But I also invite patients to show me what they find out there on the Internet or show me what they find in their communities to go to so I can review it with them and tell them, you know, help them figure out which resources will be most helpful. And now for a quick break. From discounts to exclusive content, APTA offers more membership benefits than ever before. But you can't take advantage of all these benefits if you don't know what's available. So visit APTA.org benefits and start maximizing your membership today. Now let's return to the show. Okay, Sarah. So last question, what are your words of advice to practitioners, specifically younger practitioners and students, about working with chronic pain patients? Yeah, I think what I would say to young practitioners of any kind, but young physical therapists or physical therapy assistants in this case, is that I don't, chronic pain patients, because they're so tend to be so complicated. You know, they can have pain in multiple locations. They can have a lot of comorbidities. And again, like we've talked about, they can have a lot of emotionality. I think those patients can be really intimidating to treat, especially when you're new. Um, but what I would say, like, the information that we're using to treat patients with chronic pain is also new. And you're coming out of school pretty up to date um, on good pain science and what we know. And so I think it's to have a little bit of confidence, a little bit more confidence when you're dealing with people with pain and, and to remember that somebody that's in chronic pain is in pain. You know, they're not their they're not always their best self. Generally speaking, none of us are our best selves when we're 
in pain and we're suffering. And to remember to to just really be there and act and address the emotionality and not just shy away from it. So if somebody's really upset and they're presenting with some of those fear avoiding and catastrophizing type behaviors that you're not judging that person or labeling that person annoying or difficult or non-compliant or saying things like they don't they don't want to get better or you know having those negative ideas and that isn't to say that you won't feel negative about patients because they they are challenging you know they can be very challenging and it can be you know some patients can be very affronting and can can make you feel a little uncomfortable and and unsure and so i think it's really about kind of settling down inside yourself and really giving your attention to that patient and just providing the help you can. So I I think what happens a lot, and I mean, I think this happens a lot in all providers, but um, certainly in speaking to younger providers or, or newer providers, it's, you know, when you have somebody with so many different things going on and you start to feel overwhelmed, you start to not, it's not as enjoyable to provide that person care. And we all get into healthcare because we want to help people. And when someone has a ton of problems that seem super overwhelming and you only have, you can only help with a little piece of it, you know, so if somebody has all the psychological problems and a bunch of medical comorbidities and the chronic pain and then this and the that, and you're a physical therapist, so you can't help with all those problems. You can only help with a certain piece of what they have going on. And that feels sometimes like you're not helping them. And when we feel like we're not helping people, we get discouraged. And sometimes that's where we end up saying things like, there's nothing else I can do for you, or, you know, I can't help you if you're not going to do these other things. That's when we start sending bad messaging and choosing wording that maybe isn't so good. And I just encourage people to kind of remember if you're overwhelmed by what the patient is presenting to you to really just remember that all you're doing is sitting there and listening to it. The patient's actually living through it, and they're much more overwhelmed than you are in all likelihood. And so to just provide the help you can provide, you know, don't feel like you have to solve all of the problems or that you aren't going to be successful in treatment if you can't solve all the problems. Some of those problems are unsolvable, and some of them, like I was saying earlier, trace back to childhood. You're not going to fix, like, childhood trauma from a million years ago for somebody. Um, but you can help anyone. You can provide, you can do whatever you can to help that person. And even if it doesn't help them with all the things they have going on, most people are really going to appreciate any small bit of help you can get. So I usually say just, Take it all in and just offer what you can and and feel good about offering what you can, even if that person is still struggling after you've offered it. It's still important to do your piece and do the best you can. I've used the word catastrophizing several times, and I use that word because it's reported in the literature and we all know what we're talking about, but I never use that word when I speak to patients because I think it's part of the bad 
negative wording that we use a lot in healthcare because catastrophizing means, like our understanding of the word catastrophizing means you are making a bigger deal than it is. You're exaggerating. It comes with those connotations to it. And I think that if somebody has, I mean, I understand that someone might have an injury that seems simple and in their mind they're making the injury seem worse, but there may be some legitimate reasons why they're doing that. Like they're in a job that is, they're worried they're going to get fired from their job if they don't perform well and performing well is hurting them and they can't take time off because they don't have time off or they can't get workers' comp for whatever reason. They can't get time out. This could be at work or it could be at home feeling pressure to do things at home. And so they are in a situation that is is likely to make them heal slower or not heal or have a worse outcome. So I think sometimes people are really dealing with things in their lives that are putting them at higher risk for a worse outcome, and sometimes they are, quote, catastrophizing because they have some truly legitimate concerns. So I prefer to say that when I'm discussing with patients, I don't use the word catastrophizing. I'll use the word, like, that they're very concerned about something or there's something that they're very worried about, and I think that's useful language for patients, but I also think the language, it's useful language to help shape our thoughts because when we say things like catastrophizing, I think it makes us think about patients in a different way than if we say things like the patient is very concerned and very worried and very scared, that those kinds of words evoke more empathy from us. And I think it's important to use those, And and but I do concede that catastrophizing is the sort of agreed upon term that's reported in the literature, and I use it when I discuss the topic with other professionals, but I, I think there are better words we can use. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. To learn more about APTA's Choose PT opioid awareness campaign and how physical therapists manage pain, visit www.choosept.com. APTA podcasts like this one are available on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.